I think every single team, one through 16, could potentially beat each other. Let's go a step further. Let's take 17, that's Ole Miss. 18, that's Colorado. Would any of you guys be surprised right now? I'm being honest. Would any of you be surprised if Colorado beat USC in two weeks? Hello and welcome to Always College Football. It's a Wednesday edition. It's week three of the college football season. We got a lot that we need to get to. We're going to do a little different approach to today's show. It's actually not even a little different. It's a lot different. I'm going to tell you why parody has never been better in college football, at least in recent years. Maybe it was good back in the day. I don't know. But it felt like the best had really separated in the last 10, 15 years. And why that's not the case anymore. I'm going to tell you what I love right now and what I hate right now in the sport. We're also going to get to our midweek mailbag, which we always do. And we continue to encourage all of you to submit questions into our social media account. Follow us at AlwaysCFB on both Instagram and Twitter and me at Greg McElroy on Twitter and Instagram. And if you just want to submit questions for next week, we'll start putting them in. You'll see us in there. We'd love to be able to answer some more of your questions. We've got a bunch of them that we need to get to, including one about the pistol formation. It's pretty deep in the weeds, but it's kind of fun. And we'll do some low-hanging fruit. Uh, Mark Kubiak's trying to declare the Bama Dynasty dead. So I'm just going to tell you that's part of the low-hanging fruit, but there's a lot of other aspects of low-hanging fruit that I think you might enjoy as well. Continue to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'll just, just hit that subscription Give us a five-star rating. That'd be awesome. We'd really appreciate it. And then, of course, if you could hit that thumbs up on the ESPN YouTube page, that'd be beneficial for us as well. So let's get into it. Why is there so much parody in college football right now? For as long as I can remember, people have complained about chalk flying in college football. And for the first time in a while, and y'all tell me this, y'all are all fans of the sport. I love the sport. How many of you that are not diehard fans of Michigan or Georgia feel great about where your team is at? Now, Texas, Texas, I think, is riding high at the moment, as they should be. But I think if you talk to pretty much any Texas fan, they're scared to death about the possibility of stubbing their toe against a team they shouldn't stub their toe against. Am I appealing to you a little, Texas fans? Like You know who you are. You know that, yes, while I'm super pumped about last week's game, there still lies that reality that we could lose to Baylor next week. Like You know that. I know that. It's a difficult spot to be in. So it leads me to this giant conclusion that I've drawn the last couple of days. I really believe right now that there is more parity in college football than there's been in quite some time. I'm talking maybe 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. Because the last 15 years, you felt like you could always rely on at least one, two, maybe three SEC teams. And then fast forward through week two, well, Alabama's lost a non-conference opponent at home by double digits for the first time in almost 20 years. The SEC, in general, is just three and six in non-conference play. Even Georgia fans, if they've rolled their first two opponents, they're unhappy for whatever reason with their offense. So feels like the SEC for the first time in a while doesn't feel crazy strong, right? It feels like maybe it's up for grabs in some ways. For the first time in 20 years, Colorado's a national story. And I know that they had a decent start and were ranked at one point in the 2020 season and whatnot. But man, this is the best version of Colorado that I've seen since 2003 when they beat Phil Sims, Chris Sims, excuse me, Chris Sims instead of Major Applewhite, which is a conversation that we don't necessarily have to get into today. They beat Chris Sims in the Big 12 championship game. That was 20 years ago. As I kind of surveyed the field right now, you have five teams, five teams representing five different conferences that are in the AP top five. That is, for the record, the first time that's happened since September 24th of 2017. And if you're into the analytics, which I personally don't love the analytics, I really don't. I think, 
I think they're fine. I think they're applicable. I don't think you need to definitely use them as the word of God. I don't align with that. But analytically speaking, right now, ESPN's FPI, and I know all of you, the second I say ESPN's FPI, you press pause, you turn it off, you shut it down, you give me one star on the rating. Hear me out just for a second, okay? Just for a minute. Right now, the gap between team one in ESPN's FPI and team 10 is more narrow, one in 10, than it was last year between teams one through five. Meaning last year, there was a group of teams, three in particular, that had separated themselves. Then the gap existed was some specific number of points. I don't even know exactly how it works. But now the gap that existed last year in the top five is now stretched to the top 10, meaning that there's 10 teams that are all basically within striking distance of each other. And then when I really look at the AP top 25 and the teams that aren't even receiving votes that I think are legit, I think Arkansas has a chance to be pretty good. I think Cincinnati, based on what I saw last week against Pitt, has a chance to be pretty good there in the front. I look at what Minnesota did in week one thinking that that was a pretty rough game. But man, guess what? They're 2-0s, live to tell the tale. So I don't usually go into it saying, hey man, here's how many teams I think can make the playoffs. There's X amount. Here's how many that I think can potentially win it. There's X amount. Y'all are going to think I'm absolutely crazy for saying this. And I don't like to necessarily get down the rabbit hole of, well, this is how many teams can win it. I get that. But I'm looking at this and I'm looking at teams one through, say, 15. Let's go 16 just because I think in time, maybe down the road, we'll get to a 16-team playoff. I think every single team, one through 16, could potentially beat each other. Let's go a step further. Let's take 17. That's Ole Miss. 18, that's Colorado. Would any of you guys be surprised right now? I'm being honest. Would any of you be surprised if Colorado beat USC in two weeks? Would you be shocked? Because USC is at number five, Colorado's at 18. What about this one? How about Miami? And what we saw from Miami last week, would any of you guys be surprised if Miami beat Florida State? I mean, I mean, I, I'd be a little surprised, but it would would it be absolutely jaw dropping and shocking? Like absolutely, one hundred percent. I can't believe what I just witnessed, because some people would have said, "Well, Duke beating Clemson a couple weeks ago that I can't believe that that is impossible." Well, guess what? The teams that have been insane, outrageously elite have come back to earth a little bit. Some teams that have been average have now taken the next step. And then there's a lot of teams that right now are massive question marks. The teams like UCLA, which has a true freshman quarterback that looks pretty dang comfortable and a run game that hasn't gone anywhere. Washington State, who just made mincemeat out of Wisconsin, a once very proud defense. And defensively, by the way, Wisconsin couldn't get a whole lot going on the ground, could they? That's Last I checked, that's Wisconsin's bread and butter. Miami looked amazing at times. North Carolina, two weeks ago, looked amazing. Not Last week, not so much. Oklahoma, no one's talking about Oklahoma. If Oklahoma beat Texas, would that be absolutely earth-shattering? No. I think the parity right now in college football is remarkable. And while I like I've talked about in the past, I have Michigan and Georgia kind of in a league of their own followed very, very closely by Florida State and Texas. Very closely. But in the Pac-12, I could see eight teams winning it. I really could. In the Big 12, I think it's a strong possibility or a real possibility that Oklahoma beats Texas. I think it's definitely possible. In the SEC, I think Georgia's the team to beat. But right now, who's two? Who's three? Who's four? Who's five? Can you tell me exactly the order of teams two through five, maybe six in the SEC? I can't. How about the ACC? Well, thought for sure, Florida State one, Clemson two, and then fill out the rest. Well, not with what I saw from Miami last week. Not with what I've seen from Duke so far. Not with what North Carolina did two weeks ago. And I know that there's teams I'm forgetting here. But all I'm saying is I feel like these conference races are up for grabs as much now as ever before, especially in the leagues that have abandoned the conference model, the division model. I've seen teams do it in the past. The ACC has now done it. The Big 12 obviously has done it. Pac-12 has done it. Now that they've abandoned the model of divisions, anything can happen. So parity, I think right now in college football is tremendous. A lot of it has to do with the portal. Guys are not content being a backup and waiting their turn. 
They're going elsewhere. They're playing immediately and they're making an immediate difference. A couple things that we want to do every Wednesday now. What I love, what I hate right now, okay, with college football. What I love is that Utah is 2-0 and with backup quarterbacks stepping into the ball game. 2-0 and against Power 5 competition, I might add, too. So it's not like Bryson Barnes and Nate Johnson have had to step in and they get to go against, you know, an average opponent. They had to play against good quality teams and they made the plays necessary. We also saw good quality backup quarterback play from Tulane. We've seen good quality backup quarterback play from other places as well. So I love that we continue to overreact big time to backup quarterbacks being thrust into the game. And then sure enough, these backup quarterbacks go in there and light it up. So I love that. I love that Florida State, Texas, and Miami are all back. Now, for the moment, <laughs> because this will be on freezing cold takes in a heartbeat if I say they're back permanently. At the moment, they're back. It's great to have all three of those teams sitting at 2-0. It's great to have all three of those teams within striking distance of their conference championship. And when you look at the landscape in each one of their three leagues, it feels pretty likely that Texas is going to be playing for a Big 12 title. It feels pretty likely that Florida State is going to be playing for one. And maybe Miami can get there for the first time in God knows how long. At least maybe that they've been to an ACC championship. If they have, I don't remember it. I'm going to choose to forget it if they have because I want to pretend like this is really fresh. Either way, it's great to have those teams playing good football again. It's really fun. And what I love maybe more than anything else, all offseason, we talked about conference realignment. This, you know, this team's going here, and this team's going there, and Florida State's fed up, so they need to add more teams. They need more revenue in the ACC, so let's go get Stanford and Cal. We're going to go get them, and then we're going to add SMU as well, and then we're going to take the four, uh, you know, the four schools in the Pac-12, and they're going to go to the Big Ten. You're going to have Washington, Oregon. They're going to have USC, UCLA. They're all going to go, and then sure enough, little old Washington State and Oregon State are just going to kind of twist in the wind and figure out what happens. They're going to file restraining orders. They're going to have all this other stuff going on. And then the teams that are leaving the Pac-12 are going to try to get the Pac-12 for money. And then the Pac-12 is going to say, no, you can't have money because we're not going to ease your transition to a new league and all these other things. And then sure enough, there's just Washington State and Oregon State. A couple of the teams that are currently ranked in the top 25. Hey, you know what? We don't care about your Power 5 or G5 moniker. We don't care. Bring it into our house. Bring it to Corvallis. Bring it to the Palouse. And we're going to show you who daddy is. It's been really fun to watch. So even though I do not have a rooting interest whatsoever in Oregon State, nor do I have a rooting interest in Washington State, it's really fun to celebrate their success this year after they've been left behind by all the programs that felt like they needed to go to greener pastures. So be pulling for them the rest of the way. It's cool to have them in the top 25 after what was an offseason that was not fun for them whatsoever. Here's what I hate. I hate the Nebraska zone too. And... I look at the fan base. They had wanted things to be different with Matt Rule. We said it's going to take some time, potentially. Just be patient. Hopefully, hopefully they'll get things going. Remember, too, Matt Rule at both Baylor and at Temple, the first year was not great. Now, they also have been a walking turnover at the quarterback spot. They got to figure that out. But either way, I hate that this program continues to be in a position where they just can't quite get over the hump. Y'all deserve better. They deserve better. And I hate it for them. I hate that fall camp practice schedules have gotten rid of two-a-days. Now, you're going to say, oh, you old man, you old yelling at the cloud. You don't care about player safety. No, I, it's not about that, man. I like watching high-quality offensive football, especially along the offensive line. I think that is just poetry in motion. When you see a great offensive line that's working in unison, that's passing off twists, that's just plowing over defensive lines in the run game, that are great and working in tandem, and then that guard slips off to block the linebacker at the second level at the perfect time. I love watching that. I love it. And guess what I haven't seen much of this year anywhere? is high-quality offensive line play. Why? Because it's how we practice. They now have at least 8 to 10 less practices than they had back in the day. And a lot of those practices, because of the acclimation period there at the beginning of camp, are not padded. I'm not saying you need to ramp up the acclimation period or anything like that. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not saying that you need to go put guys in harm's way. I'm not. All I'm saying is that when you got rid of practices and you put significant limitations on how you can practice, it has vastly 
changed the product on the field, in particular along the offensive line. So elite groups with good quality, high quality talent are not yet in unison. And they might not be until week six. Because on average, most teams are going two full padded practices a week and they're eight practices behind because they lost those in fall camp. So they won't be a well-oiled machine until like week five or six. You look across the board, by the way, Michigan offensive line, JJ McCarthy and co, pretty good. The Michigan offensive line, two-time Joe Moore award winner. They're not playing great ball right now along the offensive line by their standards. Alabama last week against Texas, their strength of their team is the offensive line. They haven't played great. Georgia has been inconsistent in the run game so far up to this point. We're talking about three of the best offensive lines in the country based on talent, and yet they haven't quite gelled the way they would have earlier in the season had they practiced the way they practiced six or seven years ago with two-a-days and extra practices so you can really work on the continuity within that group. And then I really hate how the Pac-12 is having their best season, maybe ever, and they won't be around next year. That's a proud conference with tremendous support, with a lot of history, and it's the last year that we ever get it. And they're going out with a bang, man. Eight teams right now in the top 25. And by the way, all eight teams, it doesn't appear to be fluky or anything. Like These teams are good. So it's a bummer that the Pac-12 will cease to exist beyond 2023. And then finally, I hate how quickly we dismiss teams after a tough performance early in the season. And I just went through, and these were the ones that were off the top of my head. 2014 Ohio State might be the best example. A team that had lost Braxton Miller in the in training camp. They played poorly against Navy. They lose to Virginia Tech, a Virginia Tech team that ultimately went 6-6 six and six before figuring it out around JT Barrett, winning 13 in a row en route to a national championship. And they had to replace JT Barrett because of an injury with Cardell Jones, who went on to play great in the Big Ten Championship, the semifinal against Bama, and then obviously the national championship against Oregon. 2015 Alabama, lost to Ole Miss in week three. Went on to rally, win the rest of their games, win the national championship. 2016 Penn State, lost two of their first four, and they weren't overly competitive. They weren't overly competitive in their two losses before they flipped the script, rallied, and won a million games in a row, including beating Ohio State and winning the Big Ten. How about 2016 Oklahoma? 2016, a good year, by the way, for just throwing babies out with the bathwater. Lost two of their first three. They lost to Ohio State and they lost to Houston before running the table, going 9-0 in the Big 12 and winning the league. 2016 USC. Uh, they lost three of their first four before inserting Sam Darnold in the lineup, winning the rest of their games, and then ultimately winning the Rose Bowl against the aforementioned Penn State in what was one of the best Rose Bowl games we've ever seen. 2022 LSU, lost to Florida State Week 1, won the SEC West. 2022 Oregon, lost badly to Georgia in Week 1, rallied one nine in a row before they came up short in the last couple games of the year when Bo Nix was not at 100%. So we need to be very careful, and I'm talking to myself here too. We need to be very careful about just throwing teams out, saying they're terrible, jumping to conclusions, because a lot can happen between now and the end of the year. Teams can get hot. Teams can improve. Teams can figure out how they're going to play. And then they become a whole heck of a lot better at the end of September, October, and November than they were early in the year. So let's, I just hate how we just cast teams aside that don't look great early on because right now a lot of teams, just about all teams, by the way, are a bit of a work in progress. Have you ever dreamed of hitting the road in your very own customized Mercedes-Benz Sprinter? Follow college football all season long by hitting all the biggest games in college football's most celebrated stadiums. At ESPN, we dreamed that dream, and with the help of Mercedes-Benz, we made it happen. This year, our very own Jen Latta has teamed up with Mercedes-Benz designers to create a road-ready, fully functional, state-of-the-art podcast studio on wheels. The ride is pure Mercedes-Benz, with all-wheel drive and the latest driver assistance, safety, and tech. The podcast studio must be seen and heard to be believed. A spacious and chill conversation space with mics, camera, and mixing board to capture the action. On board, Jen Latta will be interviewing some of the biggest names in college football. 
All points to Mercedes-Benz for always bringing some extra. Out back of the Sprinter, they're innovating. Pushing the science of the tailgate, complete with grill, cooler, TV monitors, and more. This is hashtag van life meets the fan life. To get an inside look to this one-of-a-kind, blow-your-mind collaboration came together, visit mbvans.com slash Sprinter Labs. The Mercedes-Benz ESPN College Football Podcast Sprinter coming soon to a game near you. Hey, college football fans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret that will help you win game days this season. Eckrich Smoked Sausage. You're probably asking yourself, Greg, could it be that easy? Absolutely it is. Eckrich Smoked Sausage is crafted with a perfect medley of spices for a truly rich, savory taste. They are delicious all by themselves or in any recipe you can dream up. If the word recipe sounds like a lot of work, don't worry. Visit Eckrich.com for dozens of simple, mouth-watering recipes, making your tailgate prep a stress-free event. So there you go. Eckridge Smoked Sausage is the secret to winning game days. You can thank me later. Visit Eckridge.com for more. Another edition of our midweek mailbag. Follow us always CFB or follow me at Greg McElroy on Twitter, Instagram. We want to try to involve the listeners. You guys have done such a great job of just growing the show and telling your friends our numbers are up like hundreds of percent year over year as far as our podcast downloads and interaction on social and all this other stuff. So we want to continue to encourage all of you to interact with the show so you can be a part of the show because I want to take the show. So does Mark. So does Jack. So does Jake. We want to take the show where you want it to go. So Wednesday is our opportunity because Monday's for recapping. Friday's is for previewing. Wednesday's is our opportunity to kind of interact with the listener and answer the questions that are at the top of your mind. So Let's get it started with Mr. Economy. Through week two, what would have to continue to go wrong for there to be no SEC team in the playoff? Well, it's an interesting thought because I really wish, I wish that the college football playoff committee could go into the meeting room starting on Halloween. That's when the first college football playoff committee will get together. I wish they could go in the meeting room without any preconceived notions. I wish they could really truly go in and evaluate the every league, every team throughout that seven or eight game sample size without anything that happened in 2022, 21, 20, 2016, what have you. But they're human. And I think if any of us were in the College Football Playoff Committee meeting room too, we'd probably look at a Georgia that is undefeated at that time, 7-0, with seven wins against very average competition, at least up to that point. And we're probably still going to sit there and say, yeah, you know what, Georgia, based on the eye test, the fact that they've won consecutive national championships, they're a top team in the country, right? Even though their resume up to that point for this year might not necessarily reflect that. So I think the SEC has built up a ton of goodwill over the last 15 seasons, dating back to 20, 2006, the run that they've been on with all the different champions, Georgia, LSU, Alabama, Auburn, all those different teams that have won championships, teams that have played well in the playoff, teams that have fared well in big games. I think they're naturally going to be given the benefit of the doubt. The only way the SEC doesn't get a team in is if the SEC completely implodes, meaning... The SEC has to have a two-loss champion, and Georgia has to lose a game in the regular season. That's the only way I could see it happening. And even at that point, the SEC would probably still be in a pretty good position to potentially get in, even though a lot of their teams, if that scenario plays out, would clearly be flawed. So I don't think there's a scenario where that happens. It would basically be up to the SEC to play their way out of the college football playoff. Let's go next to Connor. Do you think Notre Dame's defensive performance on Saturday showed that they can slow down Ohio State's offense? Well, the news is now out as of yesterday. Kyle McCord is officially the starting quarterback moving forward for the Buckeyes. That should hopefully 
ignite an offense that has been a, the tiniest bit stagnant. And look, you can look at the Youngstown State performance, and, and I know statistically speaking, there were some positives there. I, I personally, I blitzed the tape. I mean, I watched it really quick because there were other games that were of a higher priority to me. But I watched the Indiana game from start to finish and watched it closely, and it looked like the entire time Kyle McCord was kind of looking over his shoulder just a little bit, a little bit apprehensive, maybe not quite as willing to cut it loose as he needed to be moving forward for fear of maybe getting the hook if he made a mistake. I now think that it's his job. He's going to be way more confident. As, as a result, the offense will operate with a lot more efficiency because Ryan Day has officially made that designation. But all that being said, Right now, when I watch Ohio State, I do feel like the offensive line is the tiniest bit of a liability. And we've seen that already this year. I think you look at week one, left side of the offensive line, not great. Several pressures. Even guys, I know, look, Josh Simmons, a, fre he's a freshman. A freshman at Ohio State, a first-year starter at Ohio State at left tackle. I think you look at the edges of the offensive line. I think they're relatively gettable. Now, who's the guy that's going to be able to provide that rush against the Ohio State quarterback. And right now, looking at Notre Dame, I think they're a good, strong, solid group in the front seven. But I don't know if they have that war daddy off the edge, like an Isaiah Foskey or a Chase Young, using an Ohio State player as an example. I don't know if they have that guy. I think Javante Jean-Baptiste is fine, solid player. I think Batello. Fine, very solid player. I think Burnham has a chance, number 40, in time to be an excellent player, but he's a redshirt freshman and isn't quite yet honed in on his craft. I think Marist Leofau can breathe some fire off the edge, probably better off blitzing from the second level or up the middle. And then J.D. Bertrand, I think, is just a really smart, cerebral football player. So the best way to neutralize Ohio State's passing attack is by creating a pass rush. And at this point, I have my question marks as to whether or not a pass rush can be legitimately created from Notre Dame. Now, back end wise, corners feel great about their corners. Benjamin Morrison's an All-American candidate. But guess what? <laughs> Nobody's stopping Marvin Harrison. Nobody. That guy's going to get his. I think when you look at some of the other guys that will be in the rotation on the other side, Cam Hart and others, they're pretty good. But nobody can cover uh, Emeka Ibuka, one-on-one. Julian Fleming, one-on-one. I think Xavier Watts showed a lot of ability there at safety. Love him. Think he had maybe the best game of his career. Ramon Henderson, really bullish on what he could potentially do. But can they handle Kate Stover in a one-on-one -on -one situation? Or if they get covered over a slot, can they handle one-on-one? -on -one? I'm not convinced of that. So I think the way that Ohio State gets off schedule and gets them behind the sticks is going to have to happen along the offensive line and they're going to have to be forced into negative yardage plays. So I'll be watching closely Notre Dame this week and leading up to next, how disruptive can that be to disrupt the rhythm of the passing game that should hopefully be better now that Kyle McCord has officially been become the guy. Let's go to Bill Guilford. Georgia and Michigan don't currently play a ranked team until 11-11. So we got a while. <laughs> well, USC, Notre Dame, and Texas will play three more. Will weak schedules hurt Georgia and Michigan? I caution everybody to draw conclusions right now based on where teams are ranked. There have been so many examples of teams that are ranked high right now, lose two in a row. Next thing you know, they free fall and plummet out of the top 25. And then conversely, there are plenty of teams that came out of the gates really poorly. Now they're getting hot and you play them at the end of November, and next thing you know, that team's ranked in the top 18, but actually they're playing more like a top team that's in the top seven or eight. So just be careful with the rankings. Kind of look at the whole body of work. And with Georgia and Michigan, it's really not so much about the competition because those two teams right now are the best in college football, I think, based on commodities based on quality of play, based on talent level. Those two teams are kind of at the top. So I'm going to be watching, not based on how they play against their competition, but how they play to the standard that I now expect from them. I think you can probably add Texas to that group. I think you can add Ohio State to that group. We're not gauging Ohio State by how 
they perform against quality competition. We're gauging Ohio State based on how Ohio State is capable of playing. So we'll assess, we'll evaluate, at least on our show. We're going to try not to draw crazy conclusions based on the amount of ranked teams you beat, but more based on how you played against teams that aren't ranked or ranked, depending on exactly how difficult your schedule is. So by the way, after you beat a team, you need to root for that team because it could strengthen your schedule down the road. I know that's a real backwards way of thinking, but for instance, Texas, you need to be rooting for Alabama. Rooting for Alabama the rest of the way. Totally backwards, I get it. Miami, you need to be rooting for Texas A&M the rest of the way. Utah, you need to be rooting for Florida the rest of the way, and Baylor for that matter, the rest of the way. Oregon, you need to be rooting for Texas Tech. If the teams you beat, especially in the non-conference, you need to root for them because that's only going to benefit your resume down the road. Let's go to Zach, who wants to know about the early impressions of Florida State's wide receiver play. Week one is what I'm going to go off of because I think that's against quality defensive backs. They made contested catches. They obviously pose a lot of problems as far as their length is concerned. So... I look at the wide receiver core at Florida State, and while I don't have them in the category of an Ohio State, I don't have them in the category of, at this point, a Texas, and probably not yet in the category of a Washington or a USC. They're right there, man. I mean, they're right there, a top 10 group of wide receivers as far as creating issues with their length. And I do think that passing attack is probably one that's going to grow as the season continues forward. So love what I've seen so far. Just want to see them continue to improve. And of course, we're going to need to see them play really well against Clemson a week from Saturday. Let's go next to Famously Garnet Sports. We'd like to know Greg's thoughts on what happened to Alabama. Besides Georgia's recent success, what did Saban do wrong when it came to replacing staff? The jury is still out right now. I don't think they did anything wrong as far as replacing staff. I still think that Kevin Steele is a good coach. I still think that Tommy Reese is a good coach. And we'll just evaluate what adjustments they make. Look, first week of the season, fine performance, adequate. Second week of the season, not so great. Plenty of missed opportunities. Didn't do a great job running the football. Didn't do a great job of protecting. Didn't do a great job of making sure that the offensive line were put in a position to succeed. Didn't do a great job on first and second down. But then again, it's kind of more on the players with some of their lack of execution. So I think both coordinators are still good coaches, but I still think at the same time, let's not necessarily jump to a conclusion right now about where Bama's at. Let's assess how they improve because we've seen Bama lose in the, early in the past against, say, Ole Miss in 2015. Lane Kiffin was the OC at that point. DC in 2015, anyone want to take a guess as to who that was? That was Kirby Smart. And Kirby Smart was the DC and gave up a million points to Ole Miss there in the third week of the season. Now, what does everybody think about Lane Kiffin as an offensive mind? And what does everybody think about Kirby Smart as a defensive mind? Both are terrific, right? I don't feel like I need to explain that to anybody. Those guys are awesome. But what makes them awesome is that even though maybe there were some deficiencies revealed, they then tweaked and adjusted, and their team got a whole heck of a lot better throughout the course of 2015, to which they ultimately won the national championship there in Phoenix against Clemson. Uh, after really kind of leaning totally, almost exclusively into Derrick Henry and then really starting to improve on the defensive front and improving a little bit as far as their pass rush is concerned because the secondary got exposed a little bit against that Clemson team. So I wouldn't necessarily rush to judge right now on the coaches because the best coaches, when they see that there's a hole or when they see that there's a liability, they tweak what they're doing to make sure that liability doesn't get them for a second time. Let's go next to Kerry Johnson. Can you explain the pistol run formation and why Alabama runs almost exclusively from that formation? would be interested in understanding how the blocking scheme may be different than other commonly used run formations. Personally, I'm not a big fan of it. Kerry, you and I are going to agree to disagree. I love the pistol. Part of why I love the pistol is because when the running back, and this is a little bit XO, so just help me out here for a second. When you're in a shotgun alignment, which is where most teams they live now. I mean, I don't know what the percentages are under center versus shotgun, but I would imagine it's probably 85% across the board in college football. 
when the running back is in an offset alignment, meaning they are to the right or to the left of the quarterback, there's not as much that you can do in the run game. Now, you can run counters out of that. You can do you can do some things that can be problematic for the defense, but more often than not, when the running back is offset, the defense has a better understanding of what you might do in the run game, and they also have a much better understanding of what you might do in the pass game as well. That's where it becomes, I think, really tricky. Also, play action is not quite as good out of an offset alignment. Best play action, or at least in my opinion, some people disagree with this, the best play action to me is operating out of the under center or out of the pistol because the quarterback will put his back to the defense and can hide the football. It's harder for the defense to see exactly where the football is if the quarterback's back is to the defense. Now, it's also somewhat more difficult on the quarterback because he can't keep his eyes on defenders while the play is going on. He's going to have to turn around and in in blink of an eye, he's going to have to locate defenders off play action. So I love pistol. I think you can create a better, more downhill run game. I think you can give the running back a little bit more time to assess what's going on in front of him so that he can hit the hole at 100 miles an hour. I also think the pistol gives you great, great options as far as protecting the quarterback. So if you go to a standard drop back out of the pistol, a lot of times teams will bring pressure towards the running back. So if the running back's to the right, a lot of defensive coordinators, they'll try to identify your tells, your tendencies. If the running back's to the right, they're going to blitz the back. That's what they always say. So they're going to bring pressure off the right. If the running back's to the left, they're going to bring pressure off the left. Why? Because most running backs aren't great in protection. Now, there's ways of adjusting to that. and We don't have to go too deep down the rabbit hole. But if the back's straight behind you, it's difficult for the defensive coordinator to know which side to blitz. Where will the protection be weak? Because the running back could go left or to the right. Therefore, they can't really pick up exactly what the tendencies might be with you in pass protection. So it's a little XO, a little bit deeper, and there's a lot more layers to that question. But I really like the pistol, and it's one that I think every single team should use. Let's finally finish up with Jake. At what point in the season do you no longer consider it an early season fluke? Week four, five, six. With where we're at in college football, I don't really think there are a lot of flukes. <laughs> I really don't. There are performances that I would be that I would consider anomalies, but there are seldom flukes in college football. Now, if you look at a a turnover ridden performance where you're minus three in the turnover margin and you lose to a team that you're considerably better than, then to me that's you know, that's just a bad performance. That's that's a performance that I would consider to be an anomaly offensively for the team that lost. So I don't really look at fluke performances. I look at why the performances happened the way they did. So there's never going to be a game, oh, well, that game doesn't really matter because it was a fluke. No, 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 they all matter. And kind of like I talked about a moment ago with Georgia and with with Michigan, I try to gauge teams on what I think they're capable of doing. So I try to make an assessment. I think this team is capable of doing this offensively, this defensively. So this is kind of overall how I see them faring in this particular matchup. And if for whatever reason they come up short in that particular matchup, I try to figure out why. And then I try to figure out, all right, well, what can they maybe do better next time to avoid a similar fate? So I guess to answer your question, I don't really see performances as flukes. I see disappointing performances, but you do it two times. You do it three times. It's really more about doing it multiple times. Then that becomes who you are. So I guess in a, I'm trying to answer your question, <laughs> but I don't necessarily ever qualify a performance as a quote fluke outcome. It's usually you can point to a reason why it happened. And if that reason continues to plague the team that comes up short, then then that becomes a trend and it becomes ultimately who that team is. Hey, college football fans, whether you're on the field or in the stands, make sure you're well protected, like having a solid defense to shut down that wide receiver in the final quarter, opening lanes for your running backs to do their thing, and of course, reliability when protecting your quarterback, because great coverage is a game changer. That's why Allstate provides that same protection off the field 
giving you reliable coverage and game-winning protection for everything that matters, helping you stay game day ready every day. So get protected with Allstate. Visit Allstate.com or call a local agent today to learn more. Brought to you by Allstate. You're in good hands. Insurance coverage is subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence. The confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. Follow up our midweek mailbag with some low-hanging fruit. Coops, where are we going today? Oh, the first one, and this is the ultimate low-hanging fruit. The Alabama dynasty is officially over. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Depends a little bit on how you define a dynasty. I always define a dynasty with complete dominance over the competition almost always. And I, I think that those days have have definitely gone by the wayside. Why? Because I think the transfer portal is affected a little bit. Alabama is not quite as deep as they've been in the past as far as their second level talent, third level talent. There's a lot more youth in the second level and the third level. So I don't necessarily quantify... You know, a dynasty means that you have to win three out of four championships. That's the way I've always looked at a dynasty, whether it's the Patriots or Alabama from 09 to 12 or or from, you know, the, the possibility of winning two out of three like Clemson did. I mean, everyone has their own variations of a dynasty, but a lot of people are pointing to the low-hanging fruit argument. Well, Alabama's four and three in their last seven games against Power 5 opponents and just suffered their first double-digit loss since 2004 in Bryant-Denny. So, yeah, I think that's... That's the low-hanging fruit argument. The silver lining is that they convincingly beat the Big 12 champion last year in a bowl game. They lost two of the, the three games that we just described by a combined four points. So they're a player two here or there, and the outcomes flipped significantly. Now you can also push back and say, well, some of the other games that they won weren't were really close, and maybe they shouldn't have been. All that's totally fine. But here's what I would say right now. Alabama at the moment, their margin for error is smaller than it's been in a while. And and really the last two years, the margin for error has been really small. And if they don't play up to their standard, if they don't play their A game, they can get God. It used to be back in the day, whether it's 16, 17, 18, 9, 11, 12, you know, all those years when they were in some ways dominating the college football world, it, it took a remarkable performance from the opposition and Bama would have to play their B B minus game. They turn the football over, they give up big plays, what have you. Now Alabama can play their B B minus game and still get beat. And that is what I mean by the margin being a little bit smaller. So to say that the dynasty is over. Yeah. I think the run of dominance in which they destroy every opponent is, is done, but it doesn't mean that I don't think they can't win a championship because I still think they can. All right, next one. North Carolina isn't as good as we thought after watching the App State game. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Low-hanging fruit. And partly because I think, like we do every year, <laughs> we probably don't respect Appalachian State enough. This is a team Super Bowl. And whether it's in Boone or in Chapel Hill, when Appalachian State gets an opportunity to play against a Power 5 opponent, they show up for as long as I can remember, dating all the way back to Michigan back in 07 to where they're at right now. And you think about their three performances in particular against North Carolina. They've played them three times since Mac Brown's been there. Uh, they had a three-point uh, win that they had a chance. They got stopped on a two-point conversion that they had a chance. Then obviously Mac Brown beat them in overtime this past weekend. Like App State, they circle. <laughs> they circle the Tar Heels when they're on the schedule. It's their Super Bowl. And I would be, I would not, and Mac Brown's been very outspoken about this, by the way. I've heard him on the radio. I've heard him in the post-game press conference. He doesn't want to play App State anymore. And I don't blame him. So I think that this is a really big game for App State. I think North Carolina, in some ways, is kind of going through the motions, even though they shouldn't have been. 
But Mac Brown even referenced, hey, the intensity of practice last week was not what it needed to be. So I think this was more about North Carolina not really doing the things that they need to do, probably reading their own press clippings after the South Carolina performance, feeling themselves a little bit, thinking they're going to take it to App State, even though it was close last year. They shouldn't have been thinking that. Either way, I think they'll bounce back here moving forward. And I'm not yet at this point concerned because the emergence of the run game was really, really optimistic because now they can somehow take some pressure off of Drake May. They haven't run it like that in a while. And Damari and Hampton to have 234 yards on 26 carries, that that shows me that this offense is actually going to be very difficult to defend if they can continue to create balance that way. All right, moving on. Tennessee's slow start versus Austin P is cause for concern. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Truth. And when we think about what Tennessee's been the last couple of years, so much of their offensive success comes on the downfield passing attack. They're going to stretch it vertical. They're going to take their shots. They're going to be aggressive. They're going to, to have unbelievable speed at wide receiver that's going to get behind the defense and that's going to soften you up with the safeties. And now you're going to be able to run the football and then you're going to spread you out wide. And then they try to take away the run. They're going to pitch it out wide. Then when you pitch it out wide on the short stuff and they're going to throw it over your head. So a lot of this offense is going to be predicated on whether or not they can beat you over the top and hit big plays. And so far, Joe Milton has not really looked super accurate on the downfield stuff. Now they had, he was two of 11 on passes that were thrown more than 10 yards downfield. One was the touchdown pass to Ramel Keaton. And the other was a 20 yard inbreaker to Brew McCoy, who had to make a sliding catch, I might add, on the throw because it was a little low. So a lot of what they did this past week were throws of the line of scrimmage. Now, Joe Milton got, I mean, the numbers weren't, weren't terrible at all because he was 12 of 13 on passes thrown behind the line of scrimmage. So if they're going to become the offense that they were a year ago, if they're going to become the offense that I think they can ultimately become, he's got to be better on the downfield passes. He's got to be better on the deep intermediates, and he's got to have to stretch the field and not have the long foul balls that we've seen in the first couple of weeks of the season. Okay. How about this one? There won't be a truly worthy group of five team to play in the New York Six this year. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Well, obviously they're they're going to get in the New Year's Six, so it's low hanging fruit. But right now the the group of fives at a bit of a crossroads, and it started really in the NFL draft. We didn't see a group of five player picked in the first however many picks. I want to say like the first two rounds, first fifty picks, whatever it was. It was the longest they've ever gone in the NFL draft without having a guy from the G five that was picked. So it it is a little bit concerning as far as the top tier talent is concerned at that level, partly because of the portal guys get the opportunity to potentially go up. Guess what? Every single, you know, big time programs looking at all the G five tape and saying, well, I want that guy. I want that guy. And they have off all this NIL money and they can offer them. They go in the portal and they end up at that school. I mean, it, it's a little bit of an issue. I mean, we've talked a ton about Tez Walker and I mean, think about how many other guys are, are, are blowing up right now uh, in in the Power Five that were at G5 programs a year ago. There's a ton of them. Look at Colorado. Their whole roster is comprised of FCS and G5 players for the most part with the occasional Power Five guy that decided to go up. So I do think that the rosters on G5 programs are not what they, what they once were. doesn't mean there's not quality though. You look at Memphis, and I don't use a ton of ratings and metrics. You guys know me. I try to base it a little bit more on the eye test. But Memphis right now playing unbelievable on defense. Uh, they're number 38 in the S&P Plus, which is Bill Connolly's ranking. So number 38 team in college football. That's all college football. That's that's pretty good. But when you think about New Year's Six, you're thinking top 10, top 12, top 16 teams. So they're not really yet within striking distance. But hopefully these numbers will improve as they start to play better levels of competition. Tulane is ranked number 48 in the S&P Plus. Uh, SMU's ranked number 50 in the S&P Plus. Fresno State already has a really good win to their credit by going on the road and beating Purdue. So that's another team to consider. But right now, the G5, it isn't what it's been the last couple of years because there's not that obvious G5 candidate. Like, oh, well, this year it's UCF. Oh, well, this year it's Cincinnati. Oh, well, this year it's Houston. All those schools are now in the P5. 
when they join the Big 12. So it's a little bit more difficult to, I think, find those teams that are going to accelerate, but it's still really early. So it's difficult for us to exactly figure out who that G5 team is going to be. Okay, and last one. Something needs to change in college football scheduling because week three, the week three slate here stinks. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Well, relatively speaking, this week's stretch is is less than stellar. Um, Good news is week four is awesome. So there's truth in what you said. But then again, I mean, the backyard brawl, highly intriguing game. Even though it's not necessarily involving playoff contenders at the moment, Pitt-West Virginia is a game that we've seen however many times dating all the way back to 1905. I mean, these teams have played a ton. So up until 2011... They played every year, it felt like, from 1943 to 2011. The only reason they stopped is because of realignment, and then they kicked it back off last couple years, and they'll play eight times up until 2033 or 2034 or whatever. So there's still some really intriguing games. So if you only care about the playoff, if you only care about top-tier matchups involving teams with single-digit numbers next to their name, then this is not the week for you. But I don't think we appeal to that audience. I think we appeal to the audience that are hardcore. We love the sport. And whatever game you put on, I'm going to enjoy. And, But in, all, in saying all of that, I do think this week is, a, is an example of why we need to probably adopt nine conference games across the board because it is a little thin in areas where you'd like to have some marquee matchups. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out, and it helps the show out. Please, please, please leave us a rating. Please leave us a review. It'd be awesome. And please tell your friends that we're continuing to talk about college football, and we're going to be interactive here on Wednesdays moving forward. We break them down on Friday. We recap them on Monday. Wednesdays are for you. So continue to enjoy what we're putting out. Please help us. Please help us and send us tweets, send us questions so we can get your questions into the show and take it where you want it to go. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.